2: Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention, Daniel digger
0: <laughs> Greetings here listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and thedispatch.com, uh, go to thedispatch.com uh, to um, figure out how to do the lamada in nordic countries. So, um, and today's episode is actually sponsored by a new host and I know you're all looking forward to me giving uh, reading ads from these guys. Um, it's our friends at Tommy John. Uh more about them in a little bit. Okay, so uh of among the people who we've gotten requests for for a long time to have on the podcast who we have not gotten few people are higher on the list. Um, that are still living. Uh, <laughs> then uh, one of my favorite people to see in a green room, uh, Amy Walter. Uh, Amy, welcome.
1: Thank you. I, I I'm honored.
0: Uh, well, look. I mean, I hate
1: green rooms. Yeah. And I,
0: mean, I run into a lot of people who hate me in green rooms. <laughs> and so when you <laughs> find someone who's like chipper and pleasant and right, relatively civil,
1: right? I yeah. I feel the same way about you. I'm missing you. We don't well, I appreciate that. do the same things we used to remember those days.
0: I do remember mm-hmm. those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say you are the editor of the Cook Political Report.
1: Yes. The the national editor of the Cook Political national Report. editor. Yeah.
0: Okay. And I uh, used to be a political director type person at ABC news, but you're, um, and I only say this because I'm biased. Uh, you were the editor of the hotline. Were you not? I was. So my wife worked for the hotline. Some of my best friends have worked for the hotline. Um, uh, Josh who has been on here a few yes. times. Noted, uh, noted, but not convicted serial killer is <laughs> a hotline guy. Um, Listen, and, the, uh, the
1: number of hotliners, isn't Stephen Hayes hotliner?
0: Steve Hayes is a hotliner. Uh,
1: ben White, Jonathan Martin, Jessica mm-hmm, Taylor, mm-hmm. who's now on our staff, Nora O'Donnell hotliner.
0: I remember Chuck that. Codd,
1: hotliner it all comes back
0: chuck was the little dorky kid at the hotline (laughs) when my wife was there and that's why she has always had a very soft spot in her heart for for chuck that was in the Um, days
1: when they would have to literally drive to the airport and pick up newspapers and cut them out was she in those long she was in those
0: days so my wife's a little older than me and she um has stories about being sent as a young hotliner to the loading dock at the Washington Times to pick up the copy fresh off the the presses. And if you don't know DC, the loading dock of the Washington Times in the late 80s and early 90s is not a place you (laughs) wanted to be at (laughs) 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) Um, Male or female Uh or any of that. I mean, just this is not a place you wanted to be, but.
1: um, Right, and they would literally cut with scissors the stories out of newspapers. Xerox them and then put them on a thing called a fax machine and send them yeah. out.
0: Yeah. It's great And so my wife is a creature of many uh what do they say in French? Fiend siècle. <laughs> uh, end of eras. Uh she got her master's in Soviet politics, like literally the month like the 19- Soviet 18- Union fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh it was more like, yeah, it was basically ninety. 90- yeah, I guess it was like 89. So anyway, I don't want to date uh, my wife too much on these things because she'll get mad at me. So um, let's get started with the what we call around here the rank punditry. Yes. Um, what? Um, and first of all, are, I should ask up front, are you taking hydrochloroquine as a prophylactic?
1: Um, I am not. You should also ask, can I spell it? No. <laughs> Cannot spell it either. Or say it
0: I, properly. I it's weird. I have all sorts of words I have huge problems with, but hydrochloroquine for some reason yeah. it, it's a hard one it's, you know
2: Just rolls I, off. I'm, the I'm tongue. okay with that one. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, okay, so uh let, let me start with something that I'm just kinda curious about. We've seen a lot of this stuff about how um President Trump is starting to do badly with oldsters, with seniors. And he won by a large number, seniors in 2016. First of all, how extensive do you think the problem is? But second of all, like, um, um, how come if seniors are such a big part of his coalition, we're not seeing a the kind of drop in his overall approval ratings if he's losing steam among this sort of core constituency?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're all looking for some reason for the following. One, why hasn't this president seen an uptick in his approval rating in the same way that governors have during a pandemic? But we're also wondering why hasn't this president, whether it's at this moment or in previous low moments, um, seen the bottom drop out for him? And I think the reality is that um, there is a core constituency that supports this president but job approval and um, ballot test are two different things. And that's what I'm trying to figure out, too, Jonas. So if you say, uh, if you look at the job approval rating, it really hasn't budged all that much over the course of the president's her in- entire presidential career. But then when you match him up against Joe Biden, what you notice is that his um, job rating is higher than his vote share. Right. So in some cases, in these state polls, for example, in Florida, he had a 51% job approval rating, but he was only getting like 46% of the vote. Mm -hmm. So what is happening is there are people who are saying they think he's doing a decent job as president, but they're not yet ready to vote for him. So there are two ways to look at that. One is to say, well, those are easy people to get back, right? If they already think, you know what? Good, bad, yeah, fine. I put him on the good side of the ledger in terms of the job that he's doing. That's easier to get those people to vote for you than the people who say, I think he's doing a terrible job.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: On the other hand, if they think you're doing a good job and they still can't say they want to vote for you, w- what the heck are you doing wrong? Right? Like mm-hmm. they're obviously holding back for a reason, which is, yeah, look, given all things, I think he's doing a decent job. Do I want to put it up with another four years of this? no, nah, no, I don't. Right? right. So that's kind of where we are right now. And I think when you're looking to older voters, that's what, when we think about who's that group that's saying job approved, yes, vote, eh, don't know. Seniors could definitely be falling into that category. Um. So the fact but- that he's behind, I mean, I think what's remarkable is to be an incumbent president to be behind in pretty much every single poll, whether it's at the state or national level, it is pretty remarkable um, and dangerous place to be. So now it's only by, it's all within the margin of error. And I was thinking about this earlier today, which is the, the problem I think so many of us have had in sort of assessing, properly assessing Donald Trump and his sort of political what's the right word i guess his political his political teflonness right mm-hmm. is that everything seems to over the course of his political career which basically started go- when he went down that magical escalator in 2015 everything has broken his way right every time we say this is not going to work this is a disaster He's going to lose the primary. He's going to lose evangelicals. He's going to, you can't say this about John McCain. You can't attack a Gold Star family. You can't talk about grabbing women. Blah, blah, blah. Always breaks for him. Mm -hmm. These three states in 2016, so very close, less than 1% the difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, but they all broke his way. Even in 2018, It was a bad, bad midterm election for Donald Trump, but it could have been worse and Mm -hmm. just had a couple more points uh, changed in Texas, Georgia, Florida. That would have been a really bad night for the president, but it wasn't. So things have always seemed to break his way. And so I think we have this assumption that they're going to happen in 2020 as well because they do. Mm -hmm. But what if they don't? Right? What if those people don't come home to him? And that this moment, this pandemic is could be that breaking point.
0: You can make the case. I mean, in some ways, the the whole the, the bedevilingness of Donald Trump for the punditocracy, for the modelers, for everybody, is that his whole life he has been I mean, black swan's the wrong word. Um but he's been the statistical outlier. Right. right? And, um, it's, you know, I bring it up here quite often. There's this great cartoon that explains winner's bias where a guy's saying, you know, they told me to give up. They told me it was a pipe dream. They told me it would never work, but I didn't listen to any of them and I kept buying those lottery tickets (laughs) and I won. Right. (laughs) And like, Trump has behaved in a certain way his whole life yep. where it's he's burnt bridges in the traditional business communities. There was a reason why he couldn't raise capital on domestic equity markets is because no one would lend him money because he was a uh, not only a bad risk, but he sued people and defaulted on loans and did all sorts of things. And so he his whole model, his whole brand was to tell the world he was the richest guy in America. And so he suckered foreigners out of money. But say what you will about all that it worked for him right right and it's same thing in 2016 and same thing with all of these you know controversies that he's had he's done things that according to the normal rules are dumb or ill-advised yep and yet they work for him and um it does seem like just as a matter of statistics <laughs> that can't be sustained forever and that's what a lot of us were saying with the coronavirus is that this is the one thing that is immune to his normal MO, which is just sort of bully the opponent, make them more toxic than you, embarrass them, use the bully pulpit, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the the virus is I many ways like the honey badger. just It just doesn't care, right? Cool. Um, but I'm not even sure that conventional wisdom is true anymore, because that's what he is doing with the virus. And you've now got, you know, um, a lot of people on my side of the aisle, saying that, you know, wearing masks is for cucks and cowards and all of this kind of stuff. And it's all very, very, very strange. And so, and no one seems to care that we're recording this. We're, you know, about 10 days, eight days shy of 100,000 dead, if the, st- if the numbers hold. So, I mean, does the, the, define the laws of gravity stuff? What does it say about my profession, your profession, right. all of this kind of stuff? Do we ever go back to a normal, or is this just the shock to the system that keeps keeps getting weird forever that's right
1: and do we um because it, it's interesting that you ask us because that's who i'm going to be interviewing after i get off the phone with you or social psychologists who quite frankly mm-hmm. are, are going to be a lot better at understanding this moment than we are <laughs> because yeah. this really is you know some of it is about partisanship okay and this is not a trump phenomenon this is and a phenomenon that's been going on, certainly since the George W. Bush years and the Clinton years before that. But it really ramped up uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. But some of it really is truly about Trump. And that's why I say, you know, there's a big difference between, I, I think it's important that there's such a big difference between the governors and the president in terms of approval rating. And even in a state like Wisconsin, so Craig Gilbert, who's a great reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, he's been there for a really long time. And he wrote up today this, the point that, you know, the Democratic governor right now has a 59% approval rating, which is pretty remarkable in a state that, with Governor Walker, who was a Republican, was one of the most polarizing figures in the state yeah. and the country, right? Um, so I do think there is an ability to bring some sort of semblance of agreement in politics. The question is whether politicians see a benefit in that. And Donald Trump does not see a benefit in that. He wins when he divides and he wins when he enrages and engages because he firmly believes his side is just bigger, stronger, faster than the other side and that they will prevail every single time. My question is this, and you're right, it goes back to this gambling personality. So he's gambling right now that these calls to open the states and liberate and all of this is going to pay off, and that by the time we hit November, schools are back open. Anyway, maybe Jonah, we're at 115,000 people dead, which is a pretty Mm -hmm. horrific number. But the schools go back, the economy is kind of sputtering back to life, And uh, we just kind of are moving forward. And the president says, see, I I told you it was bad, but we didn't destroy the economy. I brought us back from what could have been a lot worse. If we listened to those Democrats, we would have been shut down for years. We'd be deep into the depression, uh, economic depression. Um, These guys just want to, you know, this was all personal. They wanted to destroy me. I'm trying to liberate you. And we kind of move forward. The big risk, of course, as we all know, is we do all of this. We open the schools. People go back to their somewhat normal lives. And we hit this disastrous wave number two. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're the president, I guess that your theory is it's easier to uh, win re-election by taking the risk that this second wave either doesn't happen, or if it does, it's not significant enough to really move public opinion. And here we are. Or that it keeps hitting the same places, right? New York gets hit again is very different than Oklahoma City getting hit.
0: Yeah, so I mean that raises something. You you said a few minutes ago that you know Trump thinks that his side is bigger, badder, stronger, and all of that um which i like the veiled six million dollar man reference but um um just on a <clears throat> this is sort of a math question right forgetting subjective questions of whether it's better or stronger uh it's not in fact bigger it's just better distributed Correct. right i mean Correct. so you have Correct. You have anti, call for really gross simplification, blue America or anti-Trump America or whatever it is, numerically, why, not, not wildly, but it outnumbers pro-Trump America. But but pro-Trump America is better distributed in the states that you need for the electoral college. Correct. Um, and, you know, so this is one of the things, I just wrote this piece for the LA Times, it'll be up on the Dispatch tomorrow. Um I'm one of these conservatives who's been in sort of a multi-front war with the new nationalists, whatever you want to call them, you know, and they go by a lot of different labels and all this kind of stuff. This pandemic strikes me as the biggest blown political opportunity for those people that we, that I've ever seen in my life. That, like what these people are arguing for is something that progressives have argued for for many, many years. Is They want these moral equivalent of war moments to galvanize around, you know, a, Central centralized government that has more power and can impose its vision on stuff. And we just haven't had one of those moments that they could take an advantage of for a very long time. And then also this pandemic, which is the first experience that America that all of, it's the first event that all Americans will personally experience since World War Two. Right. Right. Not you know, Bay of Pigs was a big deal, but most people just watch it on TV. Same thing with 9-11. Most people weren't personally affected. Only a tiny fraction of us fight in wars anymore. And. um. And, and instead of saying, okay, this is our moment to sort of do this national unifying thing, they followed Trump's lead and started, first of all, being utterly blase about deaths of old people when this country tore itself when the right tore itself apart for like Terry Schiavo, right? Remember all that? For one woman, you know? And then you have pro lifers being blase about 60, 80, 100,000 people dying. And you would have thought that the pro-life nationalist types, that the centralized government people, the, the, we're all in it together, we need more social solidarity, would have tried to corral Trump in a different way and said Trump goes with, you know, obeisance to liberal democratic capitalism and federalism, <laughs> which I kind of like, except for the policy prescription part of it here. Um, anyway, so like, it seems to me that, that, that this is a very depressing sign for the fact that people prefer to have a culture war than to actually win on culture war issues.
1: Right. Or that there is no such thing as ideology in the way that you and I think of it, right? right? That what's really keeping us in our tribes is not a shared vision of the role of government or the you know the role of of business and other influences on how we construct these institutions but instead it's well i'm for or against the other side right yeah i why are you a democrat why are you a republican why are you a liberal why are you conservative i don't know but i do know that i hate donald trump i don't know but i do know that i hate aoc and there we go mm-hmm. and it's it's become in some ways um, very uh, ridiculously uh, tied to that rather than some real core ideology. In the same way, I think that Democrats kind of get them, they may get themselves caught up in a bind too because you're starting to hear this uh, call among Democrats and not just progressives, but even those around Joe Biden saying, okay, well, here's a time for Democrats to now revive the FDR legacy, right? Here's a time when more Americans than ever are going to want to have, here's our moment, all these years of let's drain government in the bathtub. Let's, you know, government's the problem. Um, You know, Ronald Reagan effectively labeled uh, government as something that was bad. We needed less of it. And now here's a chance to prove that government can and do, can do big things. And so we need to push even harder on that. I don't, I don't know that Americans and even Democrats are going to want to hear that, right? Especially Mm -hmm. the kind of people that have moved into the Democratic camp over the last 20 years who are, you know, living in nice suburban leafy neighborhoods and have a lot of money invested in the stock market and aren't ready for a socialist movement, right? So these coalitions, I mean, to me, it comes back down to the fundamental question here of you know just how um how this two-party system how long it can last as it exists because Mm -hmm. all it has done is brought together um groups of people who don't necessarily agree on much except how much they hate the other side
0: i mean this negative polarization or negative partisanship stuff is something we talk about a lot around here and I'm, I'm with you, you know, I think the last time I was one of the last times I was on a panel was with you at the chamber of commerce for something. And, um, you know, I talked about my favorite New Yorker cartoon that has two dogs having drinks and they're wearing suits at a bar in Manhattan. And one dog says to the other, you know, it's not good enough that dogs succeed. Cats must also fail. <laughs> right. right? And, and that's what our politics is is cats must also fail. Right. And, um, but you know, part of that, So this is something I'm, you know, I've been trying to work through for a long time is uh, if if one party's reason for existence is to hate the other party and then that party, the other party goes away. The other part, the first party loses its reason to live. Right. And um, and so I've been thinking for a while that maybe the Republican Party goes away, goes the way of the Whigs um, and is replaced by something else, maybe it's called the Republican party. Maybe it's not, you know, but, um, it does seem that, you know, all of my life, the Republican party was the ideological party and the democratic party was the coalitional party. And, you know, you can say that there were big factions with the democratic party that were very ideological, but at the end of the day, the reason why, you know, the teamsters and, you know, the, the. Feminist studies professors were in the same party was a coalitional thing, not an ideological Mm -hmm. thing. That seems to be changing, right? The Democratic Party, my friend Luke Thompson has been making this point for a while. The Democratic Party is becoming much more ideologically coherent. Mm -hmm. And the Republican Party is becoming much more coalitional. You know, because in part, I mean, the best example of that is the Christian coalition types who used to say, used to make basically an, an identity politics argument. One of us must be our leader. And now they're saying one of these secular fallen people can be our leader so long as he gives us what we want. Right. That's a coalition play, not an ideological play. right. right. So do you see, I mean, what do you think is the future of the parties in the next five or 10 years? Is that trend going to continue? Is the Democratic Party going to be caught, if it becomes more coalitional, I mean, more ideological? Is it? where on the spectrum does it finally land? What does it depend on?
1: It's a really good question because I do wonder what happens. Let's say we get to the place in December where we're talking about Joe Biden president, a Democratic Senate, very narrow, but Democratic Senate and Democratic House. Mm -hmm. Will we see the factions within the Democratic Party now really emerge, right? What you're saying is they've been more, more cohesive in part because it's easy to keep cohesive when you have Donald Trump as your enemy, but now will the, uh, Bernie Sanders and the squad become a force that is much more difficult for moderates and the deal makers like Nancy Pelosi to, to, to sort of keep in the, keep on the same team. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, there becomes a sort of break within the party. Sort of what we saw with Tea Party and Republicans. You mm. know, that energy has to go somewhere, right? And if it's not going against Donald Trump, then where does it go? Well, it, it turns inward and it becomes, well, who's the the correct leader of our party? Who Who is giving us the vision that uh, we need for the next 20 years? Um and if Joe Biden's not giving us that, then we're gonna have to fight him on our own and we will find ways to undermine him or undermine Nancy Pelosi or undermine Shuhum or whatever it is um, in order to to make our point and get our way. So that to me is what is really interesting is that instead of this energy sort of going into a well here's how we can make things better together and organizations like we, We take this energy and it has to go into a place where it's still about confrontation. Um, And confrontation, look, we know it gets you on TV. Confrontation raises you money. Coalitions don't. I mean, our entire process right now really is driven by getting clicks and getting contributions. And none of that can happen with a process that puts um, comity, (laughs) C-O-M-I-T-Y, above all else. And if you're not rewarded for something, why are you going to do it? Right. We're human beings. We go to where the, we're not much different from the rat hitting the little pellet bar, right? Oh, I'm getting more pellets here. I'm going to go get more, more and more and more. So um, I think they exist, but they continue to evolve. So the thing I, I do like about studying, the I'm not a total pessimist that, oh my God, our system is so broken and it's... We're going to end up in a big dark black hole for the next 100 years when it comes to our politics. It's just sort of like watching the Electoral College change, even just over the years we've been watching it, Jonah. I mean, when I came to Washington, you know, there were there were more Republicans in Connecticut than there were in Mississippi. Yep. And that I didn't come to Washington in the 1950s, by the way. Um, I mean, I'm <laughs> old, but I'm not that old. And New Jersey was a swing state. And uh, there's no way that Democrats were going to win Colorado, right? I mean, all those things were just a given. And, and so we've seen, and I, I enjoy that about politics, right? Seeing these, the evolution of um, these parties and these coalitions over, over the years and who's able to take advantage of those most effectively. I just think what we haven't seen, certainly in the last four years, is how you can broaden a coalition instead of um, just trying to get the most uh, out of that very narrow coalition. And that has been the Trump strategy. And as we discussed at the very beginning, it's worked. It's yeah. worked very well for him because of how the current electoral college system works. But let's say it doesn't. And let's even say that the electoral college, instead of being that close, that Biden wins by a really good margin. What do you think happens, Jonah? Do you think that Republicans look at that and go, mm, "Okay, well, look, our luck just kind of ran out." You know, we've been rolling the dice, rolling the dice. It kept coming up the right number. Now, uh, you know, we just we can't play this game anymore. We knew the demographics were going to be stacked against us, and they finally they finally came and bit us. So we got to change the way we're doing things. I don't see that, but
0: I don't, I I don't know. I mean, so it's interesting. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I thought the, the 2012 autopsy thing was a mixed bag. Uh, but I generally agreed with the thrust of what they were trying to do there, which was, you know, tell the Republican party that you can't simply have a business model based upon just goosing ever, yep. ever more horsepower out of the same shrinking demographic, yep. right? And, um, and that made total sense to me. Uh, I've always thought that the sort of Roy Tashira, John Judas predictions about demographic destiny for the Democrats and all that were overblown. Yes. When you look at like what, you know, as, as, as Hispanics move up the socioeconomic ladder, they become much more difficult to distinguish from the median voter, all of that kind of stuff. Asians, you know, uh the idea that they're going to identify as oppressed minorities rather than screwed bourgeois types. I mean, there's just there's a lot more flux in the culture and all that kind of stuff than the demography is destiny stuff. But just tripling down on cranky old white men seems like a bad idea too, right. you know. Right. And um so I'm with you on there, but um the, the So you, you you talk to more politicians than I do. I, you know, until I started the dispatch, I tried actually pretty hard not to talk to politicians. And um, uh, the, the, one of the, one of the rules at NR back when I was at national review for 30 years was politicians will always disappoint you. Um, and, um, and plus politicians only ever want to ask you favors. <laughs> you know, um, At least that was my experience except for a handful of them, which I've become kind of friendly with, but anyway, Steve and I, you know, when we started this thing and started talking a lot more to politicians and, you know, and you talk them off the record and they very much want the old Republican Party back for the most part. Right. Um, But the thing that is sort of I remember Steve saying this to me because we were having a deep conversation about after meeting with one senator and he was like, you know, the 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 thing I underestimated, we always knew that politicians want to be reelected. You know that's some that's a fact right you know it's, bears want to use our national forests as toilets and politicians want to get re-elected um we know this but the what i think a lot of us took too long to notice was that the incentive structure about what gets you re-elected changed. Okay. It, for all of our lives politicians ran to their ideological extreme in a primary and then ran to the center in the general because The additional marginal votes that you needed for victory came from the center. And so everyone got annoyed with Republicans who went squishy in a general and the left got annoyed with their people who went squishy in the general and all the rest. And now because of the power of incumbency, the role of cable news um, and a bunch of uh, the role of fundraising and the Internet and all these various things, you'd much rather have a sticky, smaller plurality or even, you know, just minority of voters who you can rely on to mobilize than actually appeal to the middle. And so, at least on the Republican side, a lot of people will only do so much as is required that won't get them primaried. And as long as they're not primaried, the powers of incumbency are huge. Um, And so, first of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, um, how do you change the incentive structure that encourages parties to actually try to convert new customers rather than just simply maximize the, the battery of their, you know, existing customers.
1: Right. Well, let's do this. We'll put this in two parts. One, I agree that the incentive structure is completely messed up. And I, I look to a place, for example, like Maine, and you look at Susan Collins running for reelection, and this is a Senator who has found a way all these years to be on that knife's edge, Right. That she can be both a loyal Republican, but also a centrist that Democrats can vote for. Mm -hmm. And as she was thinking about both the Kavanaugh vote and impeachment, and, you know, I'd hear from liberals uh, who, you know, she needs to do the right thing, it's going to be the right vote, um, just like she did on healthcare, we were so proud of her. And then, you know, as soon as she voted the way she did on both of those things, it was she, she's a traitor. We hate her, etc. But my take was, you know what? Even if she had voted against Kavanaugh, or let's say even if she'd voted for impeachment, let's let's say those same people were never going to vote for her. In fact, they would mm-hmm. say. I remember sitting down with a. A farmer in in north dakota during the election to make this point about moderates uh, heidi heidkamp was a good moderate democrat north dakota uh talking to this farmer type well he was an he represented a big farming group and i said what do you think about heidi heidkamp you gonna re- vote for her uh he said, oh, I love, I love Heidi Heitkamp. She's great for us. She's great on our issues. Every time we're in Washington, she sits down with us. She meets with us. Oh, yeah, okay, so you're voting for her? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we love Donald Trump, right? So in Maine, the same thing. Would you vote for her? They'll say they liked what she did, but there's no way they're going to vote for her. We hate Donald Trump. We cannot have a Republican in the Senate. We just can't because it means that he gets another vote or Mitch McConnell, even worse than Donald Trump, gets another vote. So we can't do it. So that incentive structure is broken. What can replace it, though, is meeting people where they are. And I think for all these years, Jonah, you and I and and old time politicians have thought, well, you meet people where they are by making it about them. Uh, I'm a different party than you. But look, I brought money for the blah, blah, blah interchange, right? I got money for the VA center here in blah, blah, blah city. And that was enough. But that's not it either. I don't I think we saw that during the Obamacare debate. Remember when um Nelson, Senator Nelson, the Democrat from Nebraska, thought he was going to be able to get a pass on Obamacare because he, he made a carve out just for Nebraska, which in the old days right. would have been, see, look, I'm doing something, but I'm looking out for you, Nebraska. And what did Nebraskans right. say? What a bunch of bull that is. Yeah. Right? You're doing what? You're cutting deals on this. This package um, for special interests? Ridiculous. So what are voters really looking for? The competence piece, surely. But this idea that there are problems out there that are solvable, that don't need to be turned into um, ideological warfare um, and just kind of getting at the voters who are peripherally engaged in politics and figuring out what is it about politics that turns them off the most, or what is it that they wish politics would do for them. And to your point, which we go back, all the way back to the beginning, boy, was this pandemic a great opportunity to do that. Look yeah. how government works. You guys think it's terrible, but look, we got $3 trillion out the door to make sure that this country did not collapse. And, um, now what we're stuck on is where we are always stuck, which is this debate about the next steps and they're going to get caught up in our typical partisan muck. Um, so, look, I, I, I guess it's it, it really is figuring out these voters who are on the periphery Um, of politics, who do decide elections, spending much more time talking to them, and much less time, whether it's the amount of time that we spend watching or participating in, the sort of cable news uh, outrage cycles.
0: But so, of all the, I mean, and I know because you have to get asked these kinds of questions even more than I do, um, of the structural things, what, 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 if anything, would, if you could wave your wand mm-hmm. and and get gerrymandering reform or uh, uh, jungle primaries or, you know, my personal dream, which I am, am going to ask you about, getting rid of the primary system entirely yeah. and going back to, you know, at least brokered sort of conventions. Right. Um, uh is there anything that you just think is low hanging fruit that would obviously not solve things? Cause I don't believe in silver bullets, but like improve the incentive structures a little bit better.
1: I mean, I hate to say money, but cause it's both simplistic and impossible at the same time. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm sort of with you and, and Jonathan Rauch, who's written about this extensively, this idea of you know, kind of bring back the smoke-filled rooms um, mm-hmm. process, right? Make the primaries um, either completely open where anybody can vote and it's a jungle primary and the top two vote-getters win and leave it at that, um, or have a national primary day so that that increases mm-hmm. participation. Everybody knows it's going to be the third Tuesday in June or something. Um Rather than this patchwork, make it easier to get on the ballot. But bottom line, the way we incentivize money makes it really, really hard to make this change. And I, I, I do think that um, it, it's not just Citizens United, but even the McCain-Feingold, which, which undercut the parties. Right? Mm-hmm. They were the ones who were giving the lion's share of money. And the parties were truly invested in one thing, which is winning. And if it meant that a pro-choice Republican could win, that's who they're giving their money to. And if if Democrats had a pro-life Democrat or a pro-gun Democrat, but they could win Kentucky, fine, we're giving you that money. But in this era where the parties have less influence than ever, and it's mostly because of money, who gives out the bigger checks? Either the advocates, right, the ideologues, or these billionaires who have a very narrow agenda, but a ton of money. And people are going to follow the money, and so we go. If it would it be as simple as letting the parties come and raise soft money, and uh, then the parties could go out and recruit candidates, and uh, they would be on equal footing with the billionaire super PACs. It's not going to solve everything, but again, if you believe that the parties know the districts and the the place is better, then
0: yeah, yeah. No, look, I, I'm, I, I, I think Mitch McConnell, who let's just say does not refrain from opening himself up to certain forms of criticism from the left, uh, is nonetheless was he's one of the few politicians. I mean, in a weird way, I still have a lot of respect for because he stays in his lane. You know what? Where he's coming from. He's an institutionalist. He just, you know, he cares about being the Senate majority leader right. and nothing else. And he knows how to use power in the traditional way right. that, a, you know, the head of a, a party organ would. And so if you're an incumbent, he helps you. Right. Period. You know, and
1: if you're the best um, candidate for that seat, that's who that's who, that's who you support. Right.
0: Because he counts votes, you know, and so yep. you mean, we can argue about Barrett Garland and all that. Kind of, that's all fine. But as, just as a guy who actually understands the institution and doesn't want to be president of the United States and all of that kind of stuff, I mean, one of the reforms I would have is just basically, I would amend the Constitution to say, senators cannot run for president of the United States unless they finish two terms. <laughs> um, because the incentive structure you get for people like Obama and Kamala Harris and Ted Cruz and lots of people is the second they land there, they're thinking about running for president rather than actually being senators. Yep. But McConnell had McCain-Feingold nailed in at least one narrow regard, where he said, look, we're not taking money out of politics, we're taking money out of the parties, and we're taking parties out of politics. And that's insane to me. And and this is a broken record on this podcast, but, you know, my whole complaint about, I I think the biggest source of our problems as an institutionalist approach is the weakness of our parties. And... So you mentioned before about how, you know, the the advocates and the ideologues have outsized power because of of Citizens United. The whole argument that Madison made for parties was that they forced coalitions to compromise amongst themselves so that you can convince the people who are basically like-minded with you to take half a loaf, 70% of a loaf, because you knew you weren't going to get any loaf if the other coalition won. And so they forced internal uh, compromises among their coalitions. And the parties had to do that. And now that the parties don't play that role, the NRA or Planned Parenthood, whatever you think about the ideological issues behind those guys, they do more like for voter organizing and voter informing and, and issue framing and opposition research and all that kind of stuff those are party jobs, but they've become party by proxy and their incentive structure, since they're the ones who are raising the money, isn't to compromise amongst themselves. No. So the Planned Parenthood position has become more extreme over the years. The NRA position has become more extreme over the years because they are basically servants to their own customer base. And normally the a healthy Republican or Democratic party would go to these institutions and say, hey, look, you know, we're on your side. You know, you're going to get most of what you want, but give me a break here for a second. We got to get these guys elected in states where your 100% position is just not tenable. And without the parties being able to do that, you get this internalization of partisanship that is so much more intense than would otherwise be, because normally the parties would soak up so much of that stuff.
1: I also think there was an inherent belief and this did occur for years and years and years that you would get cohesion among regions, regions that would supersede ideology right mm-hmm. ag states southern states rural states urban states um and it made a whole lot of sense but now what we have and this is what's going to be fascinating at this moment jonah is that you have now within states states that are broken up into red and blue Um, In some cases, the line is really easy to see, like if you go to Maine and it's basically coastal and southern Maine is blue and everything else is red. Um, If you go to Virginia, it's pretty easy to see northern Virginia is a big blue splotch. Uh, As you go further south and west, it's it's really dark red. So. Um, Except for
0: university towns like Charlottesville. Right.
1: Except for Charlottesville and Richmond and, you know, right along um, the coast around Virginia Beach. But the fact is what we now have theoretically, we could see coalitions building instead of between states, but between sort of regions that look similar, right? So suburban representatives now becoming a coalition devoid of their state so i could be a georgia suburban representative who has now a lot more in common with an orange county uh member of congress Mm -hmm. than i do with my rural georgia colleague um and what does that do then to our politics right that it's it's becoming that there's not yes you're you're representing georgia but really what you're representing is a kind of community that probably looks very similar to other communities in other states. And um, so if you're a senator, what balancing that is super challenging. But if you're trying to then find coalitions around the House, again, it would make some sense to say, let's get all these suburban folks together and have a common agenda, except those suburban districts... Are becoming less and less diverse. Are becoming more and more democratic. Right, Democrats won a lot of those. And rural areas, where I think you could have—I mean, just imagine Jonah sitting in the in the 1990s, sitting in a Democratic caucus meeting, where you had uh, Congresspeople from rural Indiana and from North Dakota and South Dakota raising their hand when. Somebody from Berkeley or New York City, Boston said something that said, yeah, yeah, we, we can't do that. Okay. That's going to destroy X, Y, Z about my community. And so you had to compromise within that. Well, now there's no one sitting in those meetings, raising their hand. And at the same time, there's no one in the Republican conference meeting who's suburban, who would raise their hand to say, you guys, we can't, this thing on immigration, like we can't, can't do that in my Mm -hmm. district like that's just as not going to work and um so we took what would be these great opportunities to bring the parties together and now they're once again divided um
0: all right so i I promised some rank punditry instead we got all meta really quickly so um, so i i need to return to that um but i also just need to let people know that I have very strong views on underwear. All right. So I, I, I wasn't kidding that I have very, very strong views about underwear. And over the next year to 18 months of this podcast, I think I will familiarize all of you with all of them. Um, we may have to do some deep dives in the history of underwear. Um, we may have to do some serious metaphysical speculation about the significance of of underwear. I think we'll steer clear of some of the theological stuff just because, you know, that's not our business. Um, But in the meantime, we're delighted to have Tommy John as a sponsor of The Remnant. Working from home used to be the fantasy of every professional. Turns out, it's really not that comfortable unless you're wearing Tommy John. All that sitting down, standing up, answering the door, answering emails, picking up kids' toys, or putting down the dog's bowl takes its toll on your layers. Thankfully, Tommy John knows life has its ups and downs, wink, wink, so they've improved their men's underwear, making it more resilient to wear and tear. It's now two times more durable. It's still super soft and breathable, but now even more reliable and comfortable. And right now, when you shop at the Tommy John Memorial Day sale, you can get up to 30% off sight wide. Now I'm not talking to the ladies here. Ladies are of the fair sex and just better human beings. Um, but I don't think I've ever known a dude who didn't eventually, uh, wear at some point in his life, their underwear down to basically, it was just theoretically still intact in there. Um, you know, uh, uh, Harry Anderson used to have that great bit about how he was doing some geek act juggling and he had an axe and he would show it to the audience and say, you know, this used to be, this was uh, George Washington's original axe, the one he used to cut, chop down the cherry ch- cherry tree. Unfortunately, the the blade broke, you know, 50 years ago and they had to replace it. And then just like last month, the handle broke, so I had to replace that. But ontologically or metaphysically, this is, Uh, George Washington's original acts. Uh, The same thing sort of goes with some dudes who like wear underwear that technically has like a waistband and you can sort of see in the sort of mirage distortion um, the suggestion of underwear, but it really just isn't there. And it's been time for it to get thrown away a long time ago. And one of the great things about Tommy John is you can still do that with Tommy John stuff, but it'll just take you two or three times as long to do it. So you don't have to buy more underwear at the end of the lifespan of a normal set of underwear. Treat yourself and upgrade to a few pairs of Tommy John underwear in the softest, most breathable fabrics you've ever known. Tommy John obsesses over every little detail and stitch by using proprietary fabrics that perform like nothing you have ever worn before. All of Tommy John's loungewear and leggings are built for next level comfort. Whether you're in the hunt for lounge pants, sleep shorts, or lazing around joggers, Tommy John has you covered. As you know, if you follow my Twitter feed or the original G-File, when my wife and daughter are are out of town and it's just me and the dogs, I will often eat large numbers of meals over the sink. Tommy John is perfect for sink-eating men. Their underwear comes with a no-wedgie guarantee. They've eliminated visible panty lines for women, and their quick-draw fly has been proven to save men over 217 unfurling minutes a year. Tommy John is so confident in their underwear that if you don't love your first pair, you can get a full refund with their best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free guarantee. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. So... Shop the Memorial Day sale at tommyjohn.com and get up to 30% off site-wide with code REMNANT. Not dingo, REMNANT. That's REMNANT for up to 30% off site-wide at tommyjohn.com. See site for further details. Now, since this is their first ad with us, it would be great if uh, there was just a deluge of underwear and associated product purchases from our listeners, but you guys do what you need to do. I'm just saying it would be great. All right. So first of all, you said earlier and I was going to pick up on it, but I like where we were going. So I then, um, you suggested that Biden could win. I think at this point, yeah. obviously you could win and then you could lose. Right. I mean, um, in a polarized 50, 50 country, I think that's almost always going to be true. Uh, but, uh, you also said that the Repo- the Democrats could take the Senate, yeah. which even two months ago didn't seem all that likely, right? right? Um, what is the state of the Senate race? I mean, I just saw that they're going to drop a huge pile of cash into the Montana, Montana race, yeah. which not that's not a good sign for Republicans. Right.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, look, Republicans were always going to play defense this cycle, but what we thought at the very beginning of the cycle was it was just a limited amount of defense they had to play because they only had two seats up in states that Hillary Clinton carried, Maine and Colorado, and the others were purple or light red. Arizona, North Carolina, Iowa, Georgia, Texas, which obviously Beto came very close but came up short. Um, So it was one of those where you say, all right, Gosh, Colorado and Maine, those are going to be really tough holds um, for Republicans. But because the other states are purple or red, it, it, they'll probably be able to to hold on. They um, the Democrats would need to win four seats without the presidency to get a majority, or three seats and the presidency to to be at the majority. Um, And what's happened over these last few months, of course, is the pandemic. And what we're seeing in states that are purple slash light red is Democrats have done a couple of things. First, they've recruited really good candidates. So Mark Kelly in Arizona, the husband of Gabby Giffords, astronaut, um, pretty well known in his own right, and uh, being an astronaut but also very involved in gun control movement. And he's been an incredible, phenomenal fundraiser, running against an appointed senator. Appointed senators traditionally have a very tough time getting reelected, and Martha McSally has already lost one time. So Jerry has that going against her in a state that is moving very much against Republicans. And then you pointed to Montana, a state where, you know, they're not one of those places that ends up on a lot of target maps, but the governor's a Democrat. There's a Democrat in the Senate. It's one of those sort of libertarian, but it has democratic roots states Um, Mm -hmm. back to its mining days and labor had a big, very big presence in the state. So there's still sort of a residual, um, loyalty to to Democrats Mm -hmm. there that makes it easier, say, than a, uh, you know, a state like Utah. Um, and I think the fact that we talked about this at the beginning, that governors are getting very high marks for their handling of this crisis has helped the Democratic candidate, um, Governor Bullock, raise both his profile and his positive ratings against Steve Daines, who I don't think has done anything particularly wrong. But again, if you are just a generic Republican um, at this moment in time when the president is sort of s- struggling, and you are watching the governor's approval ratings rise up, you, you should be a little bit nervous. Um, Georgia's looking kind of like a mess. Um, Thanks in part, again, to another appointed senator who's gotten herself in hot water over stock trade she made after hearing um, early on about the potential for this pandemic. And Georgia, as we know, is another state that's not quite purple but is moving there. Mm -hmm. And so now, instead of just you know, three seats in play. Now you've put another couple seats in play, thanks in part to both good recruiting, but as I said, in Georgia and also in Kansas, it's candidates themselves that have made those seats more competitive. And now it's Democrats who aren't just on the offense in a couple of places, but they can really spread the field. And Mm -hmm. you know this as well as anybody, Jonah, but, you know, if your goal is I got to win Three seats and the presidency. um, It's a lot better to have six seats to choose from than to try to just win three out of three or three out of four, right? Make it as many seats as possible. And you know what? On election night, maybe you get lucky in one of them. I mean, Montana will be close no matter what because it's one of those states that has been historically close. But that if things break the right way for Democrats, then it's more than just the obvious states that go. Something else breaks at the end. And again, that's the the world in which we lived pre-Donald Trump, that everything would break to one party or the other. Trump comes in and things tended to break for him. This could be the first time where they're not. And what we also know is, for example, in a state like North Carolina, where you have a governor's race, a Senate race, and the presidential, the amount of money and energy going to organize that state is going to be intense. Yeah. And um, that also could help Democrats there who've recruited a really decent candidate.
0: What would be your guess is the sort of the, the most likely Dem pickups in the Senate?
1: So, Colorado, Arizona. Um, Then you go into Maine and North Carolina. So those Mm -hmm. would be the the top four. And then, you know, if they just get those four and lose Alabama, which is probably going to happen. yeah. Yeah. Um, There you go. There's your three. You netted three. Mm -hmm. That's your 50 seats and your vice president, Democratic vice president's tiebreaker. If you then start to expand it out and look at Georgia, the challenge with Georgia is they have a runoff system, so we wouldn't know until January. (laughs) Yay! Right? So (laughs) that's a disaster. Um, So let's look at Kansas, which, by the way, the filing deadline is June 1st. There are still a Mm. lot of folks who think that Mike Pompeo could make a last minute play for this. Seat. There are a lot of Republicans, obviously, who still want him to do that, including Mitch McConnell, President, um, because of the fear that Chris Kobach is just way too damaged of a candidate, and, and mm-hmm. he's more likely than not to win the primary, and then he could lose the Senate race, just like he lost the governor's race to a Democrat last time. Um, but Iowa is also one of these places that I think so many Democrats were spooked by twenty. 16 and then again by 2018 they thought well maybe we can win the governor's race in Iowa maybe 2016 was kind of a fluke how strong of the of a showing that Trump had it was a close governor's race but Democrats still came up short there so um, there is some you know concern about that state from Republicans but it's still more red than not mm-hmm. um, but you know if you put Montana, on the map and can see that thing maybe flipping by a couple thousand votes now you get up to they have 51 seats um i don't think texas makes it Mm -hmm. um so
0: do you think texas is going to go blue in the next 10 years
1: um yeah it it very well could i mean the challenge I think for Democrats and you pointed this out is converting all of those voters who traditionally we think of as should be Democrats, younger Latino, um, but who are not identifying with party in the same way Mm -hmm. that we are used to voters identifying with party. Right. Um, but, if they, if they were able to register and turn out those voters, yes, absolutely. Um, find those voters um, because you know Democrats have cracked one part of the code in Texas, which is, you know, it's not enough just to win over Latinos. You also have to win over white voters, who traditionally have been more conservative than in other parts of the south but being able to crack dallas houston suburbs austin right all those suburban voters some of them are are native texans a lot of them are folks that moved in for all those great jobs that you know rick perry brought he stole from california well guess what those people came from a whole bunch of other places moved into dallas and to houston and said wait what You know, I'm a kind of traditional Republican. I I like George W. Bush and I like taxes and I love that I don't have to pay um, state tax here. And that's all great. But I I didn't sign up for this this Trump thing. I signed up for like the regular Republican thing. Now, do they go back? This is really the question. Do they go back to Republicans if a Joe Biden presidency turns out to be either a disaster or there are those infights that we talked about of, mm-hmm. um, you know, battles over socialism and expanding government reach. Um, you know, that is yet to be seen, but I I don't think that a lot of those women are ever going back to vote Republican. I, it, it, but will some of the, some of the folks who are over here right now, uh, on the anti-Trump spectrum will they come come back that's a big key for texas
0: yeah um okay very quickly uh, i'm not wishing ill upon anybody um but if it became apparent that a supreme court seat <laughs> opened before the election oh, no wow uh you know, the, the rule of thumb is that Republicans vote more on the Supreme Court than Democrats do, um, which I th- think is kind of interesting and in its own right. It's just the psychology of the parties. Um, how do you. Uh, the, <clears throat> I, the reason why I ask this is a friend of mine who is a conservative who does not like Trump, but loves him for the judges and all the usual stuff said, look, you know, uh, if. Ruth Bader Ginsburg stepped down from the court uh, and Trump and McConnell got a replacement on before the election, I'd vote for Biden or not vote at all. Cause you know, who cares? Cause I got my Supreme court majority, oh, blah, 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 which was an interesting sort of new oh. version of this that I hadn't oh. heard, but like with the, and so it'd be what I, I guess the, like what I'm trying to get at is, is what would be in the inter- most interest of say Mitch McConnell is, would it be to Merrick Garland the seat till after the election or would it be to expedite getting another Supreme Court person on even though that would help the maybe help the Senate Republicans but not necessarily Donald Trump um do you see what I'm saying I do see
1: what you're saying I mean yeah my instinct would be that the um Supreme Court fight would intensify Democratic turnout in a way I mean. Again, not wishing ill on anybody, sure. et cetera. But for all the talk about Joe Biden needs people to be excited about him. There's an enthusiasm gap. Nobody's excited about Joe Biden. And my t- take has always been it's really never been about Joe Biden. It's always been about Donald Trump. And so a Supreme Court fight over the summer or early fall um, would be that energy factor for, for Joe Biden that he can't right. generate on his own. So that probably would benefit uh, that probably would uh, benefit him. But I don't know that it's enough to make conservatives complacent. I Damn. guess. I, but I do think it would energize liberals much more so than it would in um, making, conservatives, complacent. Maybe that's a better way to say that. Yeah. Uh,
0: Okay. And so. And it would
1: probably have a bigger impact on the Senate races too, because, you know, the Tom Tillises and Martha McSallys and Cory Gardners and, you know, all those folks who are in those reddish light pink to purple states and blue states who are going to have to vote on their second conservative Supreme Court nominee. Mm-hmm. That's going to make it very hard for all of them, um, especially right before an election.
0: Um, so just laying my cards on the table, I am on record wanting the as we discussed, I want the parties to be more powerful. Um, I think that a healthy institution for democracy to be healthy, you need a lot of undemocratic institutions that have the ability to to look out for their long term interests and the part one of the reasons the parties have gotten bad is because primaries have weakened them of their ability to protect their own long-term interests and all that and so i think in an ideal world if we still had the parties from the 1960s um or 1950s the democratic party would figure out a way to dump joe biden and replace him with andrew cuomo or i don't know who right similarly i think if the republican party had its interest it would have stopped donald trump from ever running um uh The my own view is that Joe Biden says weird stuff. He says he's been saying weird stuff for a long time. He says he seems to be saying it more now. He does seem to have lost a step. But I find that, you know, with the the Eric Trump crowd, the people who think Eric Trump is a genius. um, uh, When that crowd is trying to turn him into a pedophile is absolutely disgusting to me. Um, But let's just say for the sake of argument Joe Biden has some sort of issue that the party says we gotta, we gotta do something here. Um, what, the internal politics of the Democratic Party: Do they demand that the, essentially the runner-up from the primaries become the nominee, or do the party elders get together and actually say, you know, let's figure out something to save face here? But you know, we're not going to make his running mate Stacey Abrams or whatever right. the person you know. Um, how would that work? Do you have any, I mean, is this just all science fiction? Um, Because I I just think there's a non-trivial chance something like that happens.
1: um, Let me say this, because I, in watching 2016, I think I applied some of the lessons I learned there on the Democratic Party, which I should not have, which was this, that um, as soon as Bernie Sanders was starting to get his momentum and then it really, um, culminated in his big win in Nevada. I thought, well, here we go. It's kind of like 2016 all over again in that it's going to be impossible to stop Bernie Sanders because he's won all of these, um, he's either won or come in very close second in all of these States. And, um, these other candidates are going to continue to split the vote. And even if we go into the convention where he doesn't have the majority of delegates, it's going to be really hard for the party elders to stand up and say, well, I know Bernie Sanders won the most votes and has the most delegates, but he can't beat Donald Trump, and so we're going to pick X, right? It would devolve into an absolute disaster. Mm -hmm. What I don't think I appreciated, though, was the degree to which Democratic voters this year really fundamentally care about one thing, and that's beating Donald Trump, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to do that, even if it meant rallying around a guy who they don't really... It's not that they don't like him. They like him. They like him fine.
0: They like him better than they liked Hillary.
1: Yeah, they're just not excited about him, but they absolutely have to beat him. Um... Be Trump. Beat I mean. Trump. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where, that's where we are.
0: Okay. All right. I appreciate it. I, no problem. Uh, go I run and do your stuff.
1: Run my other interview. But okay, it was lovely talking to you.
0: It was great seeing you. Um, and uh, hopefully one day we'll be in we'll the same in room the, again.
1: We'll be able to meet again. Just not. Yeah. Not shaking hands.
0: And at some point, I had I need to meet your dog. I met your child. Fine. Yeah, whatever. But, but, but dogs, I, I got to meet. I dog.
1: mean, the dogs up plural. Uh, you did hear him, right?
0: Yes yeah. Yes, yes.
1: yeah, he made himself known again. I keep thinking I've figured out how to keep him from barking and it's not. No, that's, that's, it's not that's working. Not awesome. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. All right. Thank you, Amy. Talk to you later. Okay, so Amy had to rush, as you heard. Um, I didn't want to bother her with doing the Know You Want This is a Podcast thing. And there are people out there who think that Charlie Cook, not the Charlie Cook of the Cook Political Report, but the roundhead Tory Charlie Cook um, the Florida apologist and jingoist Charlie cook, um, uh, has the most euphonious. No, you want this is a podcast that we've ever heard. I'm not sure that we'll make this standing policy, but at the very least in a pinch, um, I have no problem going with Charlie. So that's, that, that's the explanation for what you're going to hear in a little bit. Um, in the meantime, uh, I got to go do a podcast. It's a podcast. Um, with Doug Wilson, which should be interesting, or it's an interview of some kind, and I'm um, very curious to see what he wants to interview me about. If you don't know who Doug Wilson is, um, uh, we'll find out. Um, I actually wrote an introduction to a book that was between a debate between Doug Wilson and Christopher Hitchens like 15 years ago about the existence of God, and um, it'll be interesting to see what... Um, what he wants to talk to me about. Anyway, um thanks again to everybody for all of the support. People still listening to that weird uh ruminant smoking car thing I do on Fridays. I guess it comes out on Saturdays. Um I, I appreciate the support. Um you know we um for the neck for the for the first 24 hours or so after Uh, any, any edition of the remnant comes out. We do really well on the Apple podcast rankings, um, under politics, but you know, it'd be nice if we could get more hang time there. And so if you can promote it on Twitter, if you could promote it to your friends, if each listener of this podcast just got 5,000 people to download this podcast, uh, we would be the number one podcast in the country by far. Um, and we would be able to ask the kind of advertising rates that, um, would ensure that, uh, Zoe and Pippa live a even longer and more prosperous life than they are already guaranteed to do. I'm not guilting anybody. I'm just saying, um, and, uh, other than that, um, there's nothing crucial, but please, if you can subscribe, uh, become a member of the dispatch at thedispatch.com. Um, you know, membership is for us the key to everything and um we would love that as many you know if everybody seriously if everybody who listens to this podcast became a paid member um not only would they get access to cool stuff that only paid members get you know like we're doing these new um basically every other week now it seems these video podcasts with me and hayes and david french and sarah and um we're doing another one this week on thursday and um we're going to start rolling out more and more things for the paid members because they're the heart of our business model, they're the heart of our community, they're why we're doing this stuff and we would love for everybody to become a member, if you support what we're trying to do or if you just want to see where go on the next level, if you become a paid member that would be awesome. And if you can't given the times that we have today, uh we totally understand, just forgive me for asking every now and then. Um And with that, uh, thanks to everybody. Thanks to Caleb and to Nick. And I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.